as a result of heavy rains at 7.30 a.m. Tuesday morning, March 14, 2006, the dam at the Kaluko Reservoir on the island of Kauai in, in Hawaii broke, sending an 18-foot wave of water consisting of millions and millions of gallons crashing down on the unsuspecting citizens below. Several people were killed, and the damage to the property that was done there was absolutely devastating. The thing is that no one was really expecting that to happen that morning. When it came, it came abruptly, and there was no time to prepare, no time to evacuate. It just happened, suddenly. Disasters most often unfold this way. When they come, they come quickly, catching at least most people off guard. Just like in the days of Noah, people will be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and doing business as if nothing negative could ever happen to them. Oh, there are usually a few that have warned that the dam is in weakened condition, the levees are old and need repair, or we're spending far more money than we can afford as a nation, or there's an unusual amount of chatter on the internet websites from terrorist organizations. But the sad thing is that most people don't heed the warnings. And the ironic thing is that when that news bulletin flashes across the bottom of the screen that something terrible has happened, we're just shocked. How could that ever happen here? How could that ever happen to me? How could that happen to them? I'm sure that when the flood of Noah's day came, people were shocked. Even though they should have known that it was coming. You don't mock God and get away with it. Just because judgment may be delayed, it doesn't mean that it's not coming. The Genesis flood narrative is, is an account, it's a story that is familiar to most of us. It's a rather long story, but it can really be broken down into three parts. The first part we studied last, last, uh, last time we were on Genesis, actually the first week of December, right before I left for Ukraine. But the first part was Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 22, in which we learn that God will judge rebellion, but he'll honor faithful obedience. But he is going to judge rebellion. He may take his time doing it, but it's going to happen. He'll judge rebellion, but he'll honor obedience. In chapter 7, the second, the second section of this flood narrative, our passage for today, we'll learn that the Lord destroys those who rebel against him, but rescues a remnant because of the obedience of one man. Because of the righteousness of one man, a remnant is rescued. And finally, in chapter 8, our passage for next week, a new order is established by the delivered remnant. So chapter 6, verses 9 through 22, our passage we studied previously. Today's passage, chapter 7, and then chapter 8 of the book of Genesis, where we see a new world order will be established. That will be our passage for next week. So I invite you now to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 7 as we study this, the essence of the flood and the destructive nature of it today. Chapter 7 begins with a command for Noah and his family to enter the ark. Then the Lord said to Noah, Enter the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me 
in this time, or perhaps it could be better translated, in this generation. So it begins with a command for Noah to enter the ark. The idea of entering the ark it actually is a prominent theme in this chapter as a symbol of righteous obedience. For the ark is the only vehicle that God has ordained for providing physical deliverance from this coming disaster. But it's also representative of God's place of blessing that contrasts to what's going on outside the ark. So the ark is a symbol. It's representative of God's place of blessing. And then everything outside the ark is going to be the place of destruction, the place of the wrath of God being poured out upon the people. Inside, inside the ark, blessing associated with righteous obedience. Outside the ark, wrath associated with rebellious disobedience. It does seem to be one of those either-or things again, doesn't it? Either you obey God and you're associated with his blessing, or you're, you're in rebellious disobedience to him and you will be associated with his wrath. Actually, the whole idea of entering into the ark is mentioned in several verses. We saw it in verse 1. But if you skip over to verse 7, it's mentioned there again, Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them entered the ark because of the flood. Skipping down to verse 9, Then, they, then there they went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. But he's not finished yet. In verse 13, On the very same day, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. And finally again, in verse 15, so they went into the ark to Noah, two by twos, all flesh which was with it, the breath, the breath of life. So entrance into the ark, the idea of righteous obedience is a very serious aspect of this chapter, and we ought not to miss that. Sure, the thing that we picture in our head is all the flood, the flood waters come tumbling down from the sky, and then the rushing up from the surface of the earth, and we think about that. But five times... Five times in this one chapter, we have the idea of entering into the ark. You see, that's what God wants to stress. God, God is not tapping his foot, waiting to see when he can pour out his wrath upon you. He would love nothing better for people to repent of what they're doing that is, that is inappropriate and turn to him in righteous obedience. He's not looking forward to punishing rebellious disobedience, but he'll do it. And that's the secondary theme of this chapter. But the first thing we can, we can see in the, in the five different times when the, when the text tells us, when Moses reports to us that Noah and his family entered the ark just like they were supposed to do. Do you see that? So that's the first thing that we need to understand. And the second thing is, that goes along with that, in verse 22 of the previous chapter, now I know it's been almost a month, actually right at a month since we studied this verse, but we said that chapter six, or verse 22 of chapter 6 rather summarized the entirety of those verses between 9 and 22. And it says this, Thus Noah did all that God commanded him, so he did. You see, even in the previous section, we have this either-or, this contrast. Either we're going to submit to God, or we're not going to submit to God. Either we're going to be associated with God's blessing, or we're not going to be associated with this blessing. We'll be associated with wrath. It's either-or. A lot of us would like to skirt the middle of that. We don't really want to be righteous and obey, but we really don't want to be the recipients of God's wrath either. It doesn't work that way, my friends. My good friends, it doesn't work that way. God is perfectly holy. He doesn't allow that choice. You can't choose the middle road. There is no middle road. Either we obey him or we disobey him. Either we're going to be associated with blessing or we're going to be associated with wrath. Now, granted, 
there are degrees of blessing because there are degrees of obedience. And it does appear to me, at least, that there are degrees of wrath because there are degrees of disobedience. But you don't want to be on the wrath side of the equation. It's not a nice place to be. Everyone, everything that was outside of the place of blessing is going to perish. Everything, everyone. And the destruction will be total. It'll be massive. It'll be catastrophic. It'll be a disaster. And I don't think they really saw it coming. I don't think they did. Most people don't see it coming, even though there are warnings. Even though there may be internet chatter about terrorist cells. Even though he or she may have said several times, listen, we need to talk. You know, when your spouse comes and tells you, listen, we need to talk, you better talk. They're trying to tell you something, but we say, oh, I can't believe that he left. I can't believe she walked out. They've been trying to tell you something for years, and you're not listening. In the same way, God has been telling us something for years, and most of us aren't really listening. I say most of us, as a culture, aren't really listening. But heaven forbid those who are Christians and who are in the Word not listen. We have no excuse whatsoever. I know there are a lot of predictions, and, and people make them all the time. Remember Jean Dixon? She used to make predictions all the time. You know, and she really went out on a limb. You know, things like Elizabeth Taylor's going to be divorced. You know, this year that was that was a real. <laughs> she would she would go out on a limb with things like that. But but uh, people make predictions all the time, and I I don't want to be a, a naysayer or or someone who preaches doom and gloom. But I do know this. I do know that even in our own culture, what we're doing can't be sustained. It cannot be sustained. It can't be sustained in any aspect of our culture. We, we can't sustain the money that we're spending as a culture. You know, we're, we're literally spending our children's and our grandchildren's and our great-grandchildren's future. We can't sustain that. It's not going to happen. We can't sustain some of the ways that we look at some of the social issues in our culture. All you got to do is look at television, and you, can, and you see, see behind the scenes who's writing most of the sitcoms. Uh, by the way, it's, it's one sin. I'm not going to harp on it. But, but most sitcoms are written by homosexuals. That's a fact, Jack. And if you wonder why, why male men of, say, say, my age are always, almost always portrayed in a negative light, but the homosexual in the sitcom is the one that's enlightened, just look back to who's writing it. We, we cannot sustain that. Homosexuality is a sin like any other. And, and I do believe we should love the homosexual, but we've got to hate the homosexuality. And see, that's what we've done, is we've, been, we've, come, we've, we've come to embrace the sin itself as part of, this, of a cultural tolerance. We can't sustain that. Militarily, we've got a lot of issues that we just really can't sustain these things. There, there are, politically, do I even need to go there? There are things that we can't sustain. As a culture, we can't keep going this way. There are warnings, even in our own day, of a nation that needs to return to God. Because if you don't think we've left Him, you hadn't been watching. You haven't been looking. We have, as a culture, we have left our Creator for the things of this world. And heaven forbid that the Christian community do it. But I think, in a large way, the Christian community as a whole has done it too. We have followed along, marched step with our culture. And instead of being a light to the culture, we've been, we've been a symbol of darkness to the culture. And, and I understand we've got to adapt and we've got to minister to the culture. Absolutely. Jesus did it too. Jesus ministered to tax collectors and prostitutes, the two people that the socially of their day were the, 
were, were the most frowned upon. But he didn't become a tax collector or a prostitute in order to minister to them. No offense to tax collectors if you're in the audience today. He didn't be, have to become a prostitute to minister to prostitutes. He showed them a better way. And that's what our Christian community is not doing today. We are not showing people a better way. We are adapting to their ways. And we're welcoming into the church. And so when people come into the church and they're not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, they feel real comfortable because there's nothing really different about the church in many ways as there is from what they see outside. We're trying to entertain them to death. Or actually, we're trying to entertain them into the kingdom. And it can't be done. It cannot be done. We need to be lights to the community. Now, that doesn't mean we need to be stuffy. And it doesn't need to mean that we need to be arrogant. Heaven forbid. We need to be loving and kind and worshipful of our Lord. When we sing, we need to sing. And we need to sing like we mean it. When we give it, we ought not to have to twist arms. That's why I, I will never twist your arm to give a dime because that's an act of personal worship between you and your Creator. But we ought to do it liberally. When we fellowship with one another, it should be in love so that we would be a light to these people. People that need the gospel so badly, so deeply, so desperately. Because I don't know if it's going to be a personal disaster or if it's going to be a national disaster or perhaps even an international disaster. But you know, as sure as you're sitting there, that there's going to be a time that, that, that will come when you get that phone call at 2 o'clock in the morning. And you pick up the phone and there's somebody weeping on the other end. It's going to happen. Are you prepared for that? Or have we been living and, and cultivating a relationship with a culture for so long that when, when some disaster finally does happen, when you get the call that says, hey, listen, I've got the results of your test, but I'm going to need you to come in. And please bring your wife with you. Are you going to fall apart when you get that call? Are you going to be ready for it? Because for decades you've been in the Word, you've been fellowshipping with God, and you're ready for it when it happens. I don't know what we can do about our culture in terms of getting the culture ready. But I know what we can do for us, and that is to get ourselves ready individually. And then be a light as a local church and as hopefully as a church universal to this world that needs us so much. And that's what Noah was. That's why five times in this chapter the idea of entering into the ark comes into play. Because this is, this is symbolic of Noah's obedience, entering into the ark. And then we have something that, that really knocks our socks off if we pay close attention to it. And it's still in verse 1, actually. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household. He says this to Noah, though, you see. He says it to Noah, enter into the ark, you and all your household, for you alone I have seen to be righteous before me. Actually, that's a singular concept. You alone. God has seen him to be righteous. And, and it could also be understood he's, he's, uh, he's observed him or he's declared him to be acting righteously. Not perfectly, by the way. Noah wasn't perfect. We find that when the flood narratives are over. Certainly his sons weren't perfect either. Enoch wasn't perfect, although he walked with God. The only perfect person that's ever lived is Jesus Christ. That's why he's the only qualified redeemer. That's why if we want to receive eternal life, if you haven't ever done that, and, you, and you're here today without Christ, without hope, without hope, how can you live without hope and without eternal life? I've got great news for you. I've got incredible news for you. God loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him 
should never perish but have everlasting life. Maybe you spent most of your life trying to live perfectly and you realize you can't do it and you're frustrated. Because you know if God exists, he is perfect, he's perfectly holy, and you know that in your imperfections you can't have a perfect relationship with a perfect God if you're unholy. I know that. I'm in the same boat that you are. But I know who was holy, and that's Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ paid the penalty for me. He's the only qualified redeemer. All the sins that I ever committed, every single one of them, or that I ever will commit, were poured out upon Christ on the cross, and they were judged in him. So that frees me up to do like a Philippian jailer was told by the Apostle Paul so long ago. When the the jailer says, what do I need to do to be saved? You know what, what he was asking? He wasn't asking for physical deliverance there, because he was already delivered physically. The physical danger had ended. He was asking for something spiritual, something more important even than physical deliverance. What do I need to do to receive eternal life? That's another way he could have asked that question. And the apostle said, believe on the Lord Jesus. Trust him. Place your faith in him. And you will be saved. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Now you may be sitting here thinking that that sounds too simple to me. It's got to be harder than that. And I would say, if, if I was designing the whole thing, I'd make it a whole lot harder on all of us. I really would have. But, but God designed it. And you know who he made it hard on? He made it hard on Jesus Christ. That's who it was difficult for. So when people talk about easy believism, it actually aggravates the dog out of me. Because what we're doing is we're denigrating the work of Christ on the cross. He paid it all. All to him I owe. Every single bit of it. I bring nothing to the table. I come with the empty hands. Of faith. That's all I come with. It's all of Him. We need to remember that uh, in a very special way. So Noah wasn't perfect, but he was righteous, which means that even in the Old Testament sense, he had trusted Yahweh. He had trusted God to forgive his sins and to grant him eternal life. And what I want you to see here is for you alone. For you alone. Sometimes we get the idea that it was Noah and his family. That there were these eight spiritual giants that were left on the earth. And, and these, these eight people saved humanity, or they formed a remnant. Actually, I don't know if we can sustain that biblically. It, it looks to me like there was one. Now certainly, certainly the people that were with him were, were of the obedient category rather than the disobedient category. I, I would have to say that we would, we would at least say that. But they weren't nearly as obedient as dad was. Noah's faith rescued the whole human race. The faith of one. Now how might that be applied to our situation today? God has always respected the remnant. The Old Testament, you you see it all through the Old Testament, he's always respected the remnant. In in, in Elijah's day there were 7,000 that did not bow the knee to Baal or Baal. They did not bow the knee to Baal. There were 7,000 and it rescued, what, 2 million people. It's, it's difficult to know how many people were in Israel at the time, but it was more than a million. Perhaps 2 million, maybe even more. 7,000 faithful people. Can 7,000 faithful people be found in the United States today? Well, I think they can. I certainly think they can. Now, proportionally, I, I can't do the math on the run. It would need to be more than seven if we were using that. But I don't know. Here it was only one. One that was truly faithful. And that was Noah. The point is that Noah's obedience had positive consequences for those who were associated with him, for his family. And this idea, of course, prepares us for the Abrahamic covenant, which will come in chapter 12. But that Abrahamic covenant will include, among other things, the concept of blessing by association. 
Noah's family was blessed just by being associated with him. We, we need to be clear here because I know most of, probably everybody here is, is familiar with the concept of being blessed by association with someone else. But I want to be clear about how this works. If we're one of the ones that's not acting in obedience, but yet we're blessed by association with someone who is, we may share in the overflow of the blessings given to another because of their faithfulness, but it doesn't mean that we'll enjoy the full benefit of those blessings in the same way that the one who's behaving righteously will. It's possible, and I can't say for sure, but it's possible that Noah and his wife, or rather Noah's wife and their kids and their kids' wives were delivered physically from the expression of God's wrath in the flood, but it's very possible that they didn't enjoy the full spiritual benefit of that deliverance. Let me put it another way and see if I can explain it this way. Maybe you had parents like Enoch and Noah who walked with God. And because of this, they were blessed because they walked with God. And let's just take one area of blessing. There are, are many, many more, but let's just take one area of financial blessing. Because a parent is blessed financially, that blessing will normally overflow to the children. Not, not always, but normally that will overflow to the children. They may grow up in blessed circumstances, perhaps living in a nice neighborhood, going to the best of schools, and so forth. They may even inherit a large sum of money from those parents who were blessed by God. And, and again, I'm only taking one area of blessing. Just because you're obedient doesn't mean you'll be financially blessed. I, I know that you know that. But perhaps these, these children may inherit a financial blessing from their parents when their parents are taken home to be with the Lord. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they will enjoy the benefit of that financial blessing in the same way that their parents did. You see, two people can have an equal amount of money, an equal amount of financial assets, and one enjoys those assets because they know where they came from. And they know if they lost them, they really haven't lost anything because they still have the giver of those assets. And then you have another generation on down the line that just has the asset but doesn't have the spiritual strength of the one to whom that asset was originally given. So what I'm saying is even if you're blessed by association, don't think too highly of oneself if you're in that position because it was your parents who were righteous. You need to exercise that same righteousness. And I hope that if you're sitting here today listening to my voice or perhaps watching this at some future time, you will be one of those parents that walks with God and passes down maybe a financial heritage, maybe not. That's not the point. But a spiritual heritage to your kids. Because a spiritual heritage being passed down is far more important, infinitely more important than anything else you could pass down to your kids. Anything else you can pass down to your kids. So Noah's family was blessed by association with him. But Noah's family also needed to have the same capacity to enjoy that blessing that Noah had if they're going to enjoy the full, full benefit of it. And I just don't know. This is the bottom line. We can't say that the family of Noah was experientially righteous just because dad was spiritually righteous. Okay? All we can really say about this passage is that Noah was righteous. And I'll tell you something, that, that knocks my socks off. Because God is willing, he's willing to save the entire human race by providing a remnant 
that can reproduce. Based upon what it looks very much like, the faithfulness of one man. God respects the faithfulness of men and women. And you may, you, you may look out of the culture like I do and say, oh my goodness, what can we ever do about that? And I don't mean to be trite or trivial here at all, but it's got to start with you individually. It doesn't start with the President of the United States or the Vice President or the Secretary of the State or the Speaker of the House or the, the Majority leader, leader of the Senate. These people are the ones that get the press, but it starts with you. It starts with your spiritual life. Not with your spouses. Not with your kids. It may overflow. It starts with you. So don't listen to a message like this and think, I, I, I really wish that person was here today. No, this is for you and for me. It's got to start with us. It's got to start with us. We learn that Noah is 600 years old when the flood began. Later on in the passage, we'll learn that he's 601 plus a few days when they actually get to, in, to, get to exit the ark. On the very day that the rain began to fall, the family enters the place of rescue. And not only does a torrent of rain come from the sky, but the text tells us that the, the deep, the reservoirs of water from the deep burst open. Just like that dam that I told you about in Hawaii burst instantly, suddenly, and just a mountain of water. One report estimated that 300 million gallons of water overflowed that dam. Almost instantly. Now that's a, that's a lot of water. Now that's more than I can even imagine. It must have been a big reservoir. 300 million gallons all came rushing down. R- reminded me very much of that tsunami that you hear about that, that hit Southeast Asia. Where there, people are just sitting there eating and drinking and doing commerce. And all of a sudden they're washed away by a wall of water. And that looks like what has happened here. In verse 10, it came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open. It's that word burst that I want you to focus upon for just a moment. Because, see, that's the suddenness of the disaster. When when rain falls, we're used to rain here. We're not used to snow or sleet or some other condition, but we're used to rain. And if it was to start raining really heavily out here, we may look at our watch and say, you know what, if it keeps raining this heavy, we may have to cut the service a little short because I know when it rains this heavy, the the street floods over here. Because we've we've seen that before, and we know in X amount of time that the water is going to come up pretty heavily. You remember when Allison came about? We had that whole week worth of rain, and, and the meteorologist kept saying, listen, if it keeps this up, if it keeps this up by Friday or Saturday, we're going to be in big trouble because the, the culverts are full already, there's nowhere for the water to go. But they can almost predict it because it was coming from the sky. But you, I don't know if you remember this because we lived in Pasadena at the time, and, and our street was our, our house was one of the only ones on the street that wasn't flooded. The whole neighborhood was really flooded. Um, but the thing that finally flooded our neighborhood wasn't more rain coming from the sky. It was the fact that the rain had nowhere to go. The high tide came in, it pushed the water back upon us. So it wasn't the rain so much; it was the fact that something else entered into the equation, at least in our neighborhood. Maybe in yours, too. Water overflowed the bio, I guess. But here, you see, it's not just rain. So the people can't say, you know what, if it keeps this up, I think I'm going to ask Noah if I can't get in that ark. 
Uh, you know, maybe, maybe he was right about this, but I'm going to give it until Thursday. No, it wasn't that way. There, there was no, once, once the judgment came, then the clock stopped ticking. It's over. There's no more time to adjust then. It's too late. And you see, the thing that made it too late was not so much the rain coming from the sky, although I'm sure that was ominous, and I'm sure it, it concerned them. But when the, when the waters of the deep burst open, when these reservoirs that, are, that, are, that exist underneath the earth, when those burst open, it happened like this. So there wasn't any, let's wait till Thursday. It started happening immediately. It was sudden, and that's how disasters come. Suddenly and swiftly. No, ma- no matter what the disaster is, and, and so sometimes, sometimes we get warning. Some, sometimes we... We, we feel poorly, we feel poorly for a while, and then we go to the doctor and he said, you, you know, we'll run these tests. And so you may, you may have a little lead up to it. But there's still that moment when it becomes a reality, isn't it? When you go in and she says, hey, listen, I've, I've got this report. We, we need to talk to you about that. It looks like you've got cancer. And then they may give you a prognosis about that. The time to prepare for that report is not after the doctor tells you. It's right now. The time to prepare for that disaster is not in the middle of the disaster. It really, you could argue that it can't be done then. You're already into it. The time to prepare is now. To take our spiritual lives seriously now, not later. We can't wait until we get that phone call and our, and our world has been shattered and then say, where is that passage? I know there's a passage in there. Listen, I feel for you. Because we've all done something like that. Our world is so shattered, we can't even remember our name. Much less where that passage was. We've got to have that as a part of our own soul before it ever starts. So when the text tells us that these, these waters burst open, it reminds me of a dam bursting. And there's no time to do anything after that. The obedience had to come first. The warnings had to be heeded first. God's been warning us as a culture for a while, I believe. That warning, I don't think, is just over the last few years. I think we've been warned as a culture for decades. For decades that we're going down the wrong road as a culture. And and that's just as a culture. And the reason I use that is because it affects all of us. But my friends, you know, you know that times come into your life. And and I'm looking at people who, for most of you, it's already come at least once, maybe twice, maybe multiple times. And I feel for you when you've gotten that phone call and some disaster has struck. And and you may say, oh, oh, I, I, I so wish that I would have called them and told them that I loved them. Oh, I remember the last time I was with them, but I wasn't too kind to that person. And now they're gone. And I won't get another chance here on this earth. Don't live your life with regrets. If there's a kindness that needs to be shown, show it now. If there's a verse that needs to be learned, learn it now. If there's something that needs to be obeyed, obey it now. Don't delay. If there's a phone call that needs to be made, make it today. Don't wait. I never forget driving down the Gulf Freeway a couple of years ago. 
and my, my father-in-law had just passed away, Cindy's dad. And I was on the way to the facility where, where Harvey was to help Cindy with the arrangements. I just got a call just a few minutes before that. And as, as I was driving down the Gulf Freeway, right over by the church actually, a phone rings and it, it, was, it was a relative. And they wanted to know how Harvey was doing because they had intended to come and visit him in the coming days. Hadn't seen him in decades, but knew he was sick and intended to, you know, come pay some respects. One of the hardest things I ever had to do was say, oh, I'm sorry. He passed just a few minutes ago. And the person at the other end of the line, who was a good person, a very, very wonderful, loving person, you know, just began to weep. Oh, I wanted to tell him goodbye. But she waited too long. And when for her the disaster struck, she, there's nothing that can be undone then. I'm just asking you this morning, undo it now. Participate in righteous obedience now. Take your life, spiritual lives seriously now. Don't wait. And I don't care how old you are. Because there are no guarantees on the future in terms of how long you're going to be here or somebody else is. There's no guarantee as far as how long our culture is going to be here. And may I take it one step further? There's no guarantee as far as how, how long the Lord's going to let us meet here on Sunday mornings. I hope it's for a long time. In my mind, because that's just the way I am, I've got a, a five-year plan in my mind for the church and a 10-year plan and a 22-year and plan. <laughs> I'll let you figure out what, the, what that makes me after 22 years. But, but, uh, but, I, but I do have these plans. You know, when, when this year comes, I'm going to start doing this and we need to, we need to plan for this and this. But I don't have any guarantee that there's going to be 22 more years. And neither do you. Or 40 or whatever we think. There's no guarantee. There's no guarantee that we'll get to meet next week. That's why when I pray, I pray that we'll worship fully every time we get the opportunity. We only have a limited number of these times while we're here on earth. And then it's over. And then it's over. And now we'll get to worship forever in eternity. That's true. But, that, but our status in eternity is going to be very much affected by how we lived here. And, and wouldn't it be terrible to say, you know what? Man, I wish I would have taken that worship thing a little bit more seriously while I was on earth. There will be a thing called the judgment seat of Christ. You'll get to discuss it with your Lord at that time. But there's no reason to feel any shame in, in eternity, although it seems it's possible because Lord, I mean, uh, Paul uses that term. But let's don't have regrets. I would imagine, as people were drowning in Noah's day, there were some people who had regrets. Let's don't be among them. So when God pours out his wrath, it'll come swiftly, it'll come suddenly, and it's going to be a surprise to many, even though they should have seen it coming. And it's going to be the same way at the second advent of Christ, by the way. That's why when Jesus is talking about the coming of the Son of Man, he's not talking about first advent there in the Gospels. When he says, in, when the Son of Man comes, it's going to be just like in the days of Noah. It reminds me of Solomon that there's nothing new under the sun. People are people. It'll be just like in the days of Noah. And guess what? Everything in between. When disaster comes, too often we're not ready for it. Now, a couple things we need to take a look at here. The extent of the flood has been a very hotly debated subject. Some argue that the flood waters only covered that area of Mesopotamia. They would look at it as coming from Noah's standpoint, and what Noah saw when he saw the earth was covered with water, they would look at it in that, in that way. Um, 
but most who argue for a local flood argue primarily uh, from science, from geology, based upon the idea that there's simply not enough water to cover the highest of the mountains. There are other reasons that are put forth, but, but that's, that's really the gist of it. Others counter that the flood, like the one that was described here, would have changed the geography radically so that there would have been enough water had the mountains been at a lower elevation at the time. I've, I've got to tell you, I, I really don't find that discussion that fulfilling. I look at this chapter, and I see a universal flood. And it's not just a universal flood from Noah's perspective. Noah's not writing this, by the way. Mo Moses is writing this. <laughs> so those who argue that it would be only what Noah would have seen would have to insert Moses in there as well. And in Moses' world, the world was a lot broader than in Noah's world. So I, d I just don't think that from Noah's perspective thing really carries as much weight as, as it should or as people think. But... But the point is here in, the, in these verses, verses 17 through 24, it's certainly a picture of a flood that destroys everything outside. Well, let's, let's look at the verses. In verse 17, Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. And the water prevailed, and it increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. And the water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. That's, that sounds pretty universal, unless there were only mountains in Mesopotamia, but, but I, I, I move on. In verse 20, the water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and I think that's 15 cubits is, is uh, uh, about 20-something feet higher, something like that, uh, but, but high enough that, that you couldn't see them. In verse 21, and all flesh... Well, and all flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind. Now, I suppose it's possible that all animals were restricted to Mesopotamia at that time, and all mankind was restricted to Mesopotamia. I know that, that uh, anthropologists say they don't see any evidence of, of mankind's existence outside of Mesopotamia at that time in history. Maybe, maybe not, but the point is, everything that was alive had to die. Well, let's keep going. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts, and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth, and all mankind, and all that was on dry land, and all whose nostrils was the breath of life, of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and the birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those who were with him in the ark. And the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. Now look, if, and I know we have quite a few here, but if you, if you hold to a local flood, that's fine by me. I, I don't think it makes you a heretic, but I do think it's very difficult to sustain from this passage. See, the point is that inside the ark is the place of blessing. Outside the ark, everywhere on earth outside the ark is the place of God's judgment. And unless you were to have some fantasy that the animals had not migrated outside of Mesopotamia, you've got a real problem why God even bothers bringing the animals two by two upon the ark. 
you know, if there are animals outside that are not going to be drowned, then why bother with this whole thing of two by two on the ark? But the point is, is this. The destruction was total. I don't know how Moses could have written it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to indicate that it was total any other way than what he said it here. If he wanted to say that it was total, how would he have said it other than this? Now, I also know that there are times when the text says the whole earth was this or that, and it's obvious that the whole earth wasn't this or that from the context. You have to take it from the context. So, so that's really all I want to... I don't want to spend a whole class on whether the flood was universal or local. My view is that it was universal. And I believe that it was universal based upon the text, uh, understanding that there are some scientists who would disagree with that. But I believe that the text indicates that it's universal. The language of the chapter certainly says that. Well, in the end, here's our bottom line. The Lord is going to destroy those who rebel against him. But he's going to preserve a remnant for the human race because of the faithfulness of one person. One person. Now, here's, here's what I want to leave you with on this first Sunday of the new year. Where do you want to be? Do you want to be inside the ark in, in a place that is representative of righteous obedience? Or are you going to choose to be outside the ark in the place of wrath, which is representative of rebellious disobedience? I, I mean you as an individual. I'd love to speak to us as a church, but really I can only speak individual to individual. It's up to you, and you get to choose. Are you going to be prepared for disaster when it comes? Then start today. It's your choice. Oh, Father, we, we thank you that even though we may look out at, the, at the, the clouds of trouble that seem to be forming all around us and, and listen to news and and other reports, and become very shaken up by it all. I do thank you that we have a confident expectation that you are still in control, and that you will honor righteous obedience. That you'll either deliver us from the coming trials, or you'll deliver us through them. But we know we've got to start now. So I pray that the Holy Spirit would help us, each of us, to take seriously our own spiritual lives, and to take it seriously now, and not to wait till later. And Father, today I do want to pray for those in our congregation who have received that phone call recently, even perhaps in the last week, or, or for some I know even the last few days. And, and I know they're hurting, and, and I know that they, can, that they have spiritual resources to pull from and, and that they have lived righteously, and I, I just pray that you'd get them through these trials, get them through these tribulations, help them in their time of need. For we love you, Father, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.